private credit has grown dramatically over the last decade, both the absolute size of the market and as a percentage of investor portfolios. But critics argue that the asset class has yet to really have been tested and that new entrants or those with weaker hands could face problems as we go through an economic slowdown. So I go back to, you know, the fundamentals, which is you have a lot of new platforms that haven't been cycle tested. You have a lot of people that have come into this asset class from more general Levfin capital markets backgrounds and haven't worked out middle market companies before. I mean, it's hands on. And then do you have the playbook? I mean, you don't want to be sitting there in the middle of a recession trying to figure out what the playbook is, right? That was Ian Fowler, co-head of global private finance at Barings. And this is Streaming Income, a podcast from Barings. I'm your host, Greg Campion. Coming up on today's show, live from the Barings 360 conference, my colleague and CEO of Barings BDC, Jonathan Bach, moderates a discussion with leading private credit investors on what lies ahead for private credit markets. This is a special moment to be up with uh, great leaders, great friends, great investors uh, to talk about a market that I know is very important to you. And so uh, we'll just jump right into it because I think there's a fun way to start uh, this with an introduction. And so uh, so first, I'd like you to introduce your you know name, rank, serial number, no, where you work, what you do. And more importantly, uh, if you know, since it's a Halloween time. <coughs> If you could describe the private credit marketplace as a candy, okay, <laughs> which one would it be? And so we'll, we'll slowly just move over on the other side. So Dave, we'll start with you. I'm uh, David Mihalik. I work at Bearings. I've been with the firm for 14 years, spent the bulk of my time at the firm on the public fixed income side, running our high yield and investment grade businesses. And then about a year ago, moved over to the private side of the business. Um, candy, uh, uh, Whoppers. Oh, that's a good one. That's a good one. <laughs> Do they make those anymore? I don't know. A little I thought that was a hamburger. <laughs> Ian? Uh, Ian Fowler. I'm from Barings. I've been at Barings for 10 years. I co-head the global private finance business. I sit on the investment committees for North America, Europe, and Asia PAC. And actually, uh, Bachman, I did a little work on this. This was probably the one question I prepared the most for, what kind of candy. <laughs> and uh, I think in a couple of years, it might be payday, but not today. And so I, I, went, I went global oh, wow. with my... Oh, uh, here we go. I went global with my search here and actually uh, had something sent from Canada because I think this is the, the candy bar that we're going to be talking about. And I ha- actually have one for all of you. Oh, and uh, it's called the uh, Crispy Crunch. <laughs> And when I think about my, uh, the other lenders in the marketplace, uh, direct lenders, I think some of them in the next uh, 12 to 18 months are going to be pretty crispy. I think some of them are going to get crunched. And a select few will have a delicious experience. There we go. <laughs> that is fantastic. That is, that is good. Yeah, that is worthy of applause. That, that, that is great. That is fantastic. Fran. My answer is not that. Uh, <laughs> Sorry, Fran. But hi, I'm Fran Byers. I'm uh, head of capital markets at Cliffwater. Cliffwater was founded in 2004. It was an alternatives consulting firm with about 100 billion in assets under advisement. We um, advise on private equity, real assets, private credit. Um, but we're most known for um, our asset management business, which we just launched three years ago. We have two um, private credit interval funds um, that have shown really nice growth. And the whole premise is we work with different managers throughout the market to deliver low-cost access to direct lending to the wealth channel. And your candy. Oh, my candy. Sorry. Um, My candy, I'm going to go with Sour Patch Kids. First off, because I like to bite off their heads. (laughs) Secondly, um, (laughs) Sour Patch Kids are rolled in sugar, which is sweet, which is kind of like the new issue market right now. Risk-adjusted return looks really nice on deals and for, for the first time in a long time. But then mostly Sour Patch Kids are sour. And when I eat them, I make this face like... Mm, which is the same face I make when I think of the 2021 mega tranches that got done. So, oh, 
Fantastic burn. Yeah. <laughs> Jeff? I'm Jeff Berg. I'm the CIO for the South Carolina, Columbia, South Carolina uh, based uh, state pension fund. Um, I've been there for 14, 14 years. That's kind of jarring. Uh, 14 years there. My candy, because I took this in the spirit of Halloween, John, and this year's market is kind of like going up to the door, uh, getting all excited, and then having the person drop a toothbrush into your pocket. (laughs) The most pure form of disappointment. (laughs) That's the local dentist. That's the local dentist. Fantastic. Exactly. Well, uh, so if I had to pick a candy, uh, so mine would be, if I describe the private credit marketplace, jawbreakers. You take too big of a bite, and then you're going to end up in the desk chair, right? And so if we start to think about big bites that were being taken, let's take a look here at what we've got. Let's think about 2021 and what a wonderful Goldilocks time it was uh, for private credit. Everything was higher, spreads were lower, leverage was higher, Covey light, you name it. And then, of course, moving today, which we outlined, right? We're in a much different dynamic, okay? And so if you recognize the dynamics in terms of what pressures company EBITDA, uh, and more importantly also high leverage levels, covenant light, sponsor reversion, all of that wrapped into one creates a higher level of risk for what we did do a year ago. And so, Fran, you're the leading authority on the private debt marketplace, right? And we've seen how this industry has revolved. And so when you think of the current rate moves, the current environment, right, When you think of all of that, right, give us some historical context. How uncharted of a territory are we in? And does this remind you of any other time frame, given you've been in the private debt space for so long? Yeah, well, I wasn't around in the 70s, so I can't talk to that era. Um, And clearly, private credit has grown. You're making a face. No, no, I didn't say anything. (laughs) Sorry. Was that a shot at you? I think so. this environment to the 70s with inflation. But anyway, so um, anyway, private cre- credit certainly boomed in a 0% interest rate world. But I do remember going back to pre-GFC, you know, the 04 to 07 buyout boom. We did have middle market lending back then. We had LIBOR going to 45 to 5.5% for several quarters before we went into the GFC, which wasn't ideal. But um, We did see middle market lending go through several, several quarters in that type of environment. But there were vast differences between the market then versus today. Back then, you had banks leading deals. um, And so the spreads on the underlying loans were much lower. The average spread back then on a middle market credit was like 300 basis points. And so with LIBOR at 5.5%, your all-in yields were only 8 to 8.5%, which is still much lower than the 11.5% we're seeing on a unit tranche today. And then back then, middle market loans, and Ian, I'm sure you would agree, were far more conservative. Um, Purchase price multiples weren't in the double digits. The average multiple was somewhere between 8.5 and 10 times. And so leverage on these credits was much more reasonable in the 3.5 to 5.5 times range. We had covenants. And so... I think we are in uncharted territory right now because we went through 10 years with interest rates at zero or 1% floors. And I think deals were basically underwritten on that premise. And so we are definitely going to be experiencing a new era in the next nine months with where rates are. So that's a great segue. So, Jeff, when you also think of this kind of if you were going to characterize or categorize the market that you're in from a both from a private credit, but also from a global market standpoint in terms of running the pension how would you describe it? So whether it's whether it's private credit or private equity or real assets, I think uh, people like me, we have to contemplate the fact that we're tying up money for not just three, but five, seven, ten years. So we have to ask ourselves, you know, who should we invest in? And that that for us always includes this idea that it's not a possibility, it's a probability that we're going to go through a period with meaningful turmoil. So when you zoom out and you say, okay, well, here we are. Am I surprised that we're going through a tumultuous period? No. Am I surprised that rates are higher? Not really. Am I surprised at the speed with which this has happened? Absolutely. So I was talking with a head of a a very large 
uh, alternatives firm. I'll keep him anonymous on Monday, and we were talking about whether or not this is potentially just an equity and rates correction that we're seeing, and, and it's not likely to uh, really be all that damaging for credit markets and it, you know, when it's said and done, when it's all said and done. And we were talking about it, and you think about for not just 10, I guess for 13 years now, the Fed has been doing everything in their power to create certain conditions. And where did the money go while those conditions were being you know, very forcefully created? Money went into rates product. Money went into equities. And that left us with you know, the ability to invest in credit for spread. Uh, but as we see now, look at what's happened over the last nine months. Uh, where's the money coming out of? The money is coming out of rates product. It's coming out of the equity market. And frankly, I think credit's held up quite well. Look at, look at ag versus high yield. Mm-hmm. High yield's outperformed ag. You normally think of high yield as, as a quasi, you know, like half a unit of treasuries or rates mm-hmm. and half a unit of equities. It's outperformed uh, both. So I think, uh, you know, as, as we sit here today, I don't think this is terribly alarming. The path is always a surprise. But the fact that we're dealing with something uh, unlike what we've had, I, I, don't, I don't find this all that concerning in this environment. So uh, my characterization is, I think this is somewhat normal and things are playing out fairly rationally right now. It's good to hear. Uh, looking at the private uh, credit class that both Fran and, uh, and Jeff talk about, because we all get bombarded with a high degree of marketing material, right? And we already know the marketing narrative. And the marketing narrative is any other BDC analyst or private credit analyst or RIA essentially here. The marketing narrative is usually whatever the manager's selling. Okay, so and when we all remember, right, the go-go days of the megatronch, right, bigger deals are better. Or then, of course, depends on another firm, smaller deals are better, right? And then, of course, middle deals are better. And all of those discussions, right, what we want to do is take a transparent approach because Ian and the teams, they've done them all, big, large, middle, small. And so, Ian, when you hear bigger EBITDAs better, or smaller EBITDA, you know, allows for more covenants. What's your experience tell you on the best place to invest, big, middle, small, and, and why? Okay, so first of all, on experience, just to go back to your comment, Fran, um, I was not working in the 70s, barely made the 80s. Uh, I, I, say th- I say three decades, not 30 years, for obvious reasons. Um, <laughs> And Jeff, to your point, I, I hope we, we enter into a growth recession. That, that's my, my hope, uh, but I, I don't feel like that's the direction we're going. But to your question, John, I mean, the interesting thing is the, the asset class has just changed. It's grown so much exponentially over the last 10 years. And, you know, we used to, pre-great financial crisis, we used to talk about the asset classes, you know, one market, and it was a market of five to 50 million of EBITDA. You could ask any manager around the table, and that's what they answer. I mean, today, if you asked a number of different managers the size of the market, you'd get different answers from each one. So I think what you can really, when you look at the market, you can really break it down into you know, unique, distinct market segments uh, because there are different things happening within that seg- segment. And there's different risk return profiles in that segment. So we break it out into just, you know, basic categories of, you know, small, middle and and large market. And the reality is on the small side of the market, I mean, think about the economics and the operating leverage and doing a deal. It's the same number of people, right, putting money to work, generating uh, fees and and a return. And so if you can do bigger, you generate more fees and, and higher, you know, potentially higher return, but more income. And so I, I think, you know, you don't intentionally move into the small market unless you've got some kind of niche. So I think the small market really is represented by platforms that can't raise a lot of money or have been larger in the market and have been pushed down. So one of the things I tell investors to do is look at the average size of EBITDA, 
of the uh, platform's managers closing. If it's declining, well, they can't raise money or they can't compete. It's one of the two, because I don't think they want to move down intentionally. So when you look at all that capital that's been raised in the low end of the market, you see spreads compress, you see leverage go up. And yeah, great, there's very strong structural protection. Loan documents are great. But these are small, tiny businesses that could literally disappear overnight. So you're not getting that risk premium for the, for the risk that you're taking in the low end of the market. And if you go to the, the other side of the equation on the large market, it, it gets a lot more complex. There's a lot more things happening. I mean, first of all, you've got managers that have raised $10 billion for a middle market fund. Well, you can't deploy prudently $10 billion in three years doing middle market deals. You have to move up market. Um, and, you know, for those managers, they're looking at the income they generate by doing larger deals, which is, which is great. But the problem is they're competing against the liquid markets, the broadly syndicated markets. And the issue there is what they bring to the table for the sponsors is certainty and execution. So they get paid higher fees up front. You know, that's, that's the angle. That's the value they bring because it's so competitive in the market today with, with sponsors. Uh, and who wants to do a rating roadshow? So that's the value that they bring to the table for those deals. The issue is the sponsors being smart are basically banging them over the head on terms and and leverage. So higher leverage and very little structural protection, no covenants. So you're getting paid more in fees, less in spreads, higher leverage and no structural protection. We like the middle of the middle market, which is on a risk return uh, profile. You're getting basically you know, the, the highest uh, spreads, comparable uh, leverage to the low end, but, you know, stronger structural protection to the large market. And the question I have for the large market is, you know, it's a great strategy when the liquid markets are open because you get to refinance and recycle that capital because they'll eventually take it out to a liquid market and you can redeploy that capital. So you're making really nice returns on that capital. But when the markets are stuck, like they're stuck right now, these managers are holding big positions. If they go through a recession with these companies and these companies need liquidity, they're going to have to write big checks to support those companies. And this is new ground, uncharted. So the question is, on the large end, is it a sustainable or a situation strategy? And we'll know the answer after the next conventional recession. It's a great one. Because often we'll hear on big uh, companies, regardless of whether they generate cash or not. Oh, I mean, the sponsor put in about 50 percent, 60, 70 percent. I mean, oh, my God, it's just fantastic. Right. And so I want you to just take a look at LTVs feel like you pay. But what really pays is cash. Right. Cash generation, the ability to leverage thereof. And so when you hear that LTV debate, recognize that, you know, V has been heavily dependent on an accommodative Fed, which is completely switch this course. And so when you think of the underlying loan to values that exist and the true fundamental value of these businesses in a rising rate environment, it begins to give you some pause as to the marketing jingles that we will all undoubtedly hear. And so this gets to a point, Dave, just when you think of the size of a particular company and your experience in managing numerous kind of high yield and levered loan structures, is bigger better? No. And, you know, I maybe to state something that sounds obvious, it's to me not big versus small. It's a good versus a bad company. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, you're, when you're in a credit committee discussion, there, there is not a binary answer. There, there is a spectrum. And you're not just underwriting a company. You're underwriting a, a package, right, an investment where you're thinking about the asymmetric risk that exists in this asset class. So, If it goes well, you get your money back, you get your coupon. If it goes bad, you can lose all of your money. And so I think when you think about whether you're in the the middle market, in the large cap market, whether it's a liquid deal, an illiquid deal, you're first underwriting the quality of the business, the durability of the cash flow. You're then underwriting the sponsor, which speaks to the loan to V. And then third, and, and very importantly, you're underwriting a covenant package. And, and what that really speaks to is you get comfortable with a 50% loan to value, for example, and you say, I'm covered. If the company gets in trouble, are you protected against that V, right? And so we've seen a lot of high profile things in the, in the syndicated market, headline names where documentation has gotten weaker over the years and there's the ability to do a lot of 
creative things in the structure which may extract value from the first lien lenders. And you know, for a long time, there's a simplistic view of you know, 50% loan to value, senior secured, I'm covered. I don't have a lot to worry about. And so I think that, you know, that conversation has gotten a lot more complex as deal terms have changed. At the same time, offsetting that is, again, you frequently have a company with 500 million of EBITDA and a global footprint, and, and it's not a company that can just go away overnight. And so maybe you do believe in that, you know, that value a little bit more, but it is can you, can you really capture that value in a stress scenario? And so as I think we get into a potential recession next year, you will have an increase in defaults. And I worry less about the default rate. You know, is it going to be four, five, six percent? I care greatly about the recovery rate, right? You can have a five or eight percent default rate. If you recover 90 cents, 100 cents on the dollar, it'll be reflected in your total return and you'll be just fine. You can manage in this asset class to a zero percent default rate. Probably means you don't take any risk or on the liquid side, you sell at the wrong time. And it always ends up reflected in your total return. So it's, it's really, you know, the quality of the business and the overall package you're underwriting. So that actually dovetails, uh, Fran, in a question for you. So here we can see uh, effectively the, the covenant light debate, right? Uh, syndicated versus high into the middle market, et cetera. And you do operate the largest multi-manager fund uh, in existence. Congratulations. And you've done uh, quite a great deal of uh, work with both uh, institutional and, uh, and wealth investors. And so you've seen in working with a number of managers, including Bearings, um, your fair share of covenanted versus covenant light transactions. And so here's the question. Will covenants matter in the coming recession, why or why not? And when you think of covenant light, ARR loans, right? How do you expect those to perform? So let's start with just first covenants in the recession. Do they matter? Why, why not? And then we'll talk about ARR and what that is. Yeah, I'll take the ARR one first because that's a okay. quicker answer. Um, so I pray to God people are not doing covenant ARR loans. I haven't seen any. Um, most ARR loans have usually two covenants, um, because you're lending off of revenue. You're get, letting the borrower basically spend their cash flow on you know, sales and marketing and, and, and building products. And so if you're not putting covenants on that, that's just crazy. Um, and so we tend to see a minimum liquidity covenant on those and a debt to ARR covenant. Now, to your point, a lot of the giant ARRs, or the GARs, as we like to call them, when they flip to... Wait, say it again, giant ARR, and you call it... <laughs> GARs. GAR. All right, so you heard that yeah. here. Well, we're going to make it a thing. Yeah. GAR, GAR um, loans, right? Giant ARR. You got it. Yeah. Okay. Trademark that. So when those flip to an EBITDA-based structure, those do flip to Covlight, but it's only after they flip that you see that. So let's put that aside. Let's hope no one's doing those. Um, on the EBITDA-based loans, I think you have to break it up into lower and upper middle market. I think everyone would agree, to Ian's point, lower middle market companies need to have covenants. It 100% matters. You need to get to the table with the sponsor, have them put equity into the business, cancel some of the debt, or put a plan in place. Otherwise, your recovery values could be abysmal. I think the biggest debate is on the bigger credits. Um, the growth in private credit that we've seen and the ability to take market share is because these managers are offering Covlight. If they weren't doing it, they wouldn't be gaining this market share. So it's almost something you have to do to compete. And candidly, I have researched this. I have read ratings reports on this. I've spent a lot of time thinking about it. Um, if Covlight was really all that bad, we wouldn't have had the $1.4 trillion institutional loan market adopted for eight years. Mm -hmm. There's been no conclusive evidence that shows that Covlight results in a worse outcome. Yes, you can have lower um, recoveries, but your chances of defaults are also lower because you tend to see it on better businesses, bigger businesses, and it gives them more runway to operate the business. And really what the findings show is that when conjunction with Covlight, it's all the other stuff that really dictates recoveries. The fact that we're lending at record high first lien leverage levels with no structurally subordinated debt beneath you. The fact that EBITDA adjustments are stupid and make no sense and are super aggressive. Um, and the docs are super loose. So those factors probably are gonna have a bigger result in terms of your recoveries than whether it was Covlight or not. And then 
Last point is, would we all love covenants? Yes. Um, but I've seen in the upper middle market deals with covenants basically miss P&I payments without even hitting a covenant. <laughs> it was basically meaningless because the covenant was so wide or the devil's in the definition because the EBITDA definition in the covenant has to be tight. And if it's not, if it's so loose, it's basically worthless anyway. So would I love covenants? Yes. But I just don't think managers are getting good ones at the upper end. It's great. So now what we'll do is we'll, we'll shift a little bit to the people because the people aspect here, it often gets understated. And as Drew outlined, which I thought was a, an excellent point made from Mass Mutual, is that you know people pick people and we're in a people business. So Dave, you lead the private markets business at Bearings. And so when you think about Managing a team in a tumultuous time, and in particular, whether it's direct lending, there's just high levels of uncharted waters. What's the best way to motivate and lead a team in that dynamic? And this is one I always learn a lot. What are some of the common mistakes you see leaders or other folks make in this type of an environment? It's a good question. It's an important question, I think. Maybe as a quick background, I was thinking about this the other day. I've got 24 years of work experience. I started that with five years active duty military where you were preparing every day for chaos, right? That, that, that's what you prepared every day is to think about what ifs and chaos. Um, and it's sort of the foundation you lay in peacetime that you, you, you know, put in place culture and values that, that allow you to react to the chaos. I then got out of the military and went into work. Uh, at a bank and leveraged finance right before the financial crisis. And, and, and you see, I'm sorry, I got out, sorry, skipped a step, which I gloss over because it was a year of my life, but and got out in 2001, prepared for that in 99, 2000, went into the telecom industry. Saw that industry literally implode within my first six months. I was working at Alcatel, now Alcatel-Lucent in Dallas, and within six months, it's welcome to corporate America, layoffs are coming fast and furious. Um, went to business school, then got into banking, leveraged finance, you know, right into the financial crisis. Saw that industry change really quickly and really dramatically. And luckily, I've been in asset management for about 14 years and seen a period of stability. But also, we all lived through COVID and saw how quickly uh, the world can change. So, you know, all that to say, I've seen a lot of things where things change quickly, right? And, and it, you know, 24 years of professional work experience, you've had sort of three times where you're like, wow, the world changed almost seemingly overnight. And so I think, you know, what's most important is the ability to, you know, be calm when things get volatile, be an active listener, take in information, but then make decisions and move forward. And I think when you're in that period of volatility, that ability to, to, to st stay calm, continue to listen, think, but then act, Indecision can can kill, um, and and that's and that's something that's really important. Is you got to you know make decisions, move forward, and then again, it's that foundation you lay every day. When you know trend lines are you know if you look back over history, you know up and to the right. Over time, you know things tend to work out. So you keep that in mind, and it's the foundation you lay in terms of core values and culture. So that when you get into those turbulent times, you can sort of keep the level head and trust the people around you to do things in a certain way. And I think, you know, the mistakes that people make are, are overreacting or thinking short term. And I think that's where, you know, again, the, 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 the conversation around mass mutual and the ownership of bearings, the ability to think long term. I mean, that's in our DNA. Certainly, we've got to react to specific credit situations or problems, um, but we're, we're, we're always trying to take the long term view. And Ian, so you've been in uh, numerous and led numerous private credit teams, uh, you know, th through, a, through your career. And I guess the question would be, when you think of periods of stress, sometimes direct lenders make specific mistakes and you've seen them make those mistakes. Um, and so if you were going to outline a common pitfall that a direct lender makes in this type of an environment, what would you say it would be? Yeah, so I, th I think you got to look at it from uh, two angles. One, the individuals and, and the leaders themselves and, and, the, and the people and the culture, everything that uh, David described. Uh, but you have to look at it from a platform perspective as, as well. I mean, I think what's interesting, and, and I think it's lost on some people, is you know this asset class is extremely resilient. It's not going away. But if you look at various cycles... 
the capital providers have, and the landscape has changed dramatically. I mean, you know, pre-2001, it was banks providing capital. We actually had a lot of international banks that were coming in providing sponsor financing. And then they all got flushed out. And it really became, as Fran said, the balance sheet driven uh, providers, FinCo's insurance companies. And then after the great financial crisis, they got wiped out and became asset managers and BDCs. And so we're, we're in a period right now where most platforms did not exist prior to the last recession and have not been through a conventional recession. And we saw during COVID cracks. You know, we saw managers out there that needed rescue financing. We saw some BDCs that uh, had mismanaged the right side of their balance sheet and had to raise dilutive equity. There's some issues right now that another question I'll get into. And quite frankly, the, the, the errors that were made, um, like with the uh, rescue financing, was assuming that, and again, in history, you can look and say in any recession, 60 to 70% of your revolvers are going to get drawn. But in COVID, where everyone was impacted, 100% were drawn. And so, you know, some of these managers just didn't have the capital and defaulted on revolver draws. That's pretty serious. I mean, from a, if you think about it, just in terms of the economy, if you had a bunch of uh, private lenders defaulting on revolver draws, what impact does that have? I mean, that's a systemic issue, right? So thankfully, uh, COVID was a speed bump for those direct lenders, and they were able to muddle their way through it. So I go back to you know the fundamentals, which is you have a lot of new platforms that haven't been cycle tested. You have a lot of people that have come into this asset class from more general Levfin capital markets backgrounds and haven't worked out middle market companies before. It's very labor intensive. It's very painful. If you have a company that you're going through a workout, that's one person working that company out full time. So you take a portfolio of 300, 400 portfolio companies, God forbid we get to a 10% default rate, got 40 companies, do you have enough people to manage mm-hmm. you know, all those credits? I mean, it's hands-on. And then do you have the playbook? I mean, you don't want to be sitting there in the middle of a recession trying to figure out what the playbook is, right? And so it's knowledge, it's resources, and then it's capital. Do you have the capital and the liquidity uh, defensively to support some of these companies as they, you try to bridge them through a recession, right? If any closed-end fund should have 10% reserves at least in terms of you know, dry powder to support companies going through a recession. And not all managers are thinking that way. Um, and so I think that's going to be the, you know, the, the issue is we're going we're gonna to see some platforms. We saw it in COVID. If you get into more of a conventional recession that lasts 12 to 18 months, they're not going to be able to sweep things under the rug. I think that's a great point. I mean, I, if I were to add, uh, you know, when I think of, um, uh, to, to Dave's point, indecision is a decision. It's just the wrong one, right? So in this environment, indecision is a decision. It's just the wrong one. And then also when we think of change is the only constant. So there's a lot of managerial hubris. In fact, there was a large manager at a similar meeting like this that stated in front, there is not a rate environment in which our portfolio will not outperform. Okay, that, that's both a level of hubris and an inaccept, you know, to just uh, to, to accept reality and, and change and adapt. And so when we think about that dynamic, right, now let's pull this one up here. Let's talk about the investors, because there has been a very strong migration to alternatives. And I want to thank our friends at Cliffwater uh, for creating this, right? And so they have a fantastic research as it relates to just the general uh, uh, private credit and alt universe. And so what you can see here, and Jeff noticed this, is that you know, the Fed's forceful push in driving investment yields higher, right? It's pushing a number of folks to, to look at you know, investment grade relative to private credit. And there's a running secret as it relates to pension funds, and Jeff, I hope you don't mind if I share this, is that while oftentimes pension funds will espouse to invest on a real basis, i.e., let's beat inflation, 
Managers often look at a nominal return, i.e., hey, I, I got a 7% in this environment. Corp IG is a lot higher. Treasuries, Bach, isn't it just easier for me to buy treasuries instead of buying uh, BDC, private credit, et cetera? You know, and, and, and both Ian and Dave and I hear this all the time. And so if you think about that dynamic, where do you see private credit allocation headed in your space over the next five years? I think that really depends upon whether or not rates are elevated okay. more uh, structurally and, and more. Let's assume that 3% terminal rate or 3, 4, whatever. Let's assume yeah. that's going to be next five years. Okay. So let me start with, and I think this is an absolutely fantastic chart. Because Bring the chart up one more time, please. What you see is left to right, you see the impact of low rates and it plays out over time. So you're 100% right to, to ask the question, not just about private credit, but about alts more broadly, uh, candidly. Uh, so there's a, there's a significant difference between a public pension fund that has uh, capped its inflation sensitivity of its liabilities. So my plan, for example, this is just a, a function of how the powers that be in the state house decided to try to get to fully funded over time. We capped the colas for our uh, plan participants at one percent or five hundred dollars. Wow! Let that sink in for a moment in this environment. Yeah. So uh, if we wind up in an environment in which rates and inflation are elevated. I actually have an ability to de-risk. Now, let's take another state that does not have that cap in place. Mm -hmm. Let's say they have to pass through four or five, six percent cost of living adjustments into their retirees. It's all about how you design the plan and do you, do you tailor your assets, you know, the way that you invest your assets to the structure of your liabilities. So to your question, I think that our appetite for private credit is reasonably stable because we aren't trying to generate an equity return with it. Mm -hmm. We're trying to generate reliable spread with the people who understand how to deliver that to us. And of course, you guys are, are a, a very big part of that puzzle for us. As we think about, let's just do a thought exercise here. So my uh, nominal return target, 7%. So let's take ag back to five and a half percent. And generally speaking, over very long periods of time, equities deliver you a neighborhood of 10. I can actually hit my nominal return target with 30 to 35 percent equity. Mm -hmm. So rates move back up. What should I do? So I think that the path back for a plan that's structured like mine is less equity uh, less alternatives, but the things that are reliable, and this is why, you know, Ian, what you just said, I think is of critical importance, is you don't, in, you don't know how you've invested until the rains come. And that's when you find out, you know, what's the Warren Buffett when the water, water goes uh, out, the water find, goes out, out find out who's been swimming without a, yeah. a swimsuit. Um, <laughs> A fantastic picture with us. <laughs> so, uh, you know, I, I, I think that what's going to happen is if rates, as rates rise, I think there's going to be some skepticism about whether they're, it's a more permanent, we're back to normal, mm -hmm. or if this is a temporary, you know, we've, we've heard people talk about the pulse. Is this a pulse or is this a more structural shift? So private credit done right with quality firms, I think has proven itself and provided we get through what, what is a more, I don't, I don't know that you could call anything more organic and natural end of cycle, but relative to the curated end of cycles that we've had for the last couple of times, if we clear this hurdle, I think private credit is what high yield used to be. Mm-hmm of structural part of how people think about, you know, diversifying in the, mar in, in the capital markets. Makes complete sense. 
Let's actually turn that into a wealth discussion here for a moment. So, I'll, uh, Fran, I want to go to you. And so what we'll look here and let's just bring up the, uh, the slide here. So the wealth category historically had been heavy underallocated or say rather underallocated alternatives simply because the, the access is more difficult. This we all this we all know. Right. And so uh, democratization, et cetera, all the key fund buzzwords. Right. All at play. What I want you to do is is take a look at what a wealth investor has experienced as a result of the current uh, environment. So whether it was treasuries, the S&P, the 10-year, you know, corporate bonds, levered loans, high yield, everything's down, right? And yet when you look over to the right, you see private credit as measured by the Cliffwater Direct Lending Index, which has generated a rather attractive positive return. And of course, that is unlevered. And so what happens is, is while we, we believe that the range of substitutes to make investments in the wealth categories higher, you can go to corporate bonds, you can go to high yield or lever loans that are trading at deeper discounts. The difference, though, is, is that every manager that didn't have this, and I learned this from one of our close partners uh, in South America, the folks that did not have private credit allocation are now going to fight the current war the way they thought about the last. I've got to get exposure to that alternative category because another RIA has it. They generated better return. I better figure this out and start to make my allocation. And it was a very insightful point when you think about the psyche of their business as they handle uh, investor wealth. And so, Fran, here's the question. How would you, given the growth of your platform, characterize private credit in the wealth category, right, and as growing? And do you expect that to increase in the face of the recession we're currently experiencing or may experience? I think you like answered the question. No, there we go. <laughs> but I mean, well the chart answers the question, right? So um, wealth is new to private credit, 100%. The high net worth industry is giant. It's $25 trillion. And we work with a lot of RIAs that have very small operations team. They don't have deep access to managers and the ability to negotiate fees down like you do, Jeff. So they haven't historically been having access to this asset class. We've offered them a product that brings private credit at a very low cost, and we've seen a lot of them migrate. You know, a lot of them have 60, 40 portfolios, heavy equities and bonds. And we've said, just take a little bit of your bond exposure and put it into private credit. And I will tell you that this year has been really hard for these wealth managers because as they're opening up their account statements in a 60-40 portfolio, it's just a sea of red. And historically, you know, bonds and equity shouldn't move in the same way, but in this inflationary and rising interest rate environment, unfortunately, the two asset classes have been very positively correlated, which is bad because folks are seeing this sea of red. And so those folks that did go into private credit we're often getting phone calls being like, this is a bright spot in our portfolio because not only has it been really stable returns, but the returns have been moving higher with the base rate moving higher. As you all know, they get marked quarterly, so the unrealized losses are not nearly as dramatic as what you see in the liquid markets. And so my view is that we're going to continue to see these wealth managers move into private credit. I will say that the money has started to slow. Flows are slowing because of... I don't know if you guys know it, but there's this really old asset class that's looking really hot right now, and it's called cash. And you can get 4% cash. And so I do think we're up against cash right now is like our biggest competition because a lot of folks are saying we do know private credit's going to have some losses. And so maybe I hang out some of my money in cash. But I think if you think, you know, post-recession, long-term, we're going to continue to see those allocations to private credit continue to move higher. So that creates a segue because, Ian, when we think about the dynamics that are coming from wealth, and this is one that we spend a lot of time on, wealth or institutional capital, often the vast majority or a heavy majority, particularly in the U.S., of the capital that we raise, that equity, will lever. Okay, And in leveraging, right, we generate attractive returns. Now, um, a number of our banks and, and close partners are also in this room. So, Ian, how would you characterize bank behavior and the ability to leverage what's coming in from an equity perspective, right? And, and how would you characterize that with, um, w with the market's need to provide financing? 
Yeah, so you're gonna make me sound like a Debbie Downer again, um, and and I am. It's a half, the crunch bar. I, I am a I am a half uh, glass kind of guy because I'm in the debt world, but I do have a personality. I like to have fun. He does. Um, and and we will enjoy a chocolate bar. So, um, so yeah. So it's interesting because you just threw this question at me uh, yesterday. I did. And. Uh, it brought me back to the, the great financial uh, recession because leverage was not used like, uh, well, leverage today was not used very often uh, back then. And I was one of the, the few that was using leverage back then with my uh, firm Freeport. And today, of course, in the market, it's, it's all over the place, uh, especially in North America for platforms and for investors. And uh, in Asia, and less so in, in the UK, where they don't really use leverage. Um, but the reality is, right now, there is no leverage in the US from any of those providers. Uh, basically, the, the, there was uh, the, the capital that was available for platforms was, was shrinking. Um, that was being messaged by US banks uh, for the last uh, six to eight months. And then the Fed came in in the last quarter and, and put the squeeze on by increasing capital reserves, and it's gone. There is no capital available for lenders. So basically, if you're a lender right now, you're on standby on American Airlines. You've put your name down and said, hey, when you guys have 200, can you give me 200? And they're like, yeah, get on the, on the list. And the concierge key guys will be the ones that get the capital. So, I mean, that's happening. So that's kind of like issue number one. Uh, and by the way, the European banks and the Canadian banks have been providing some of that capital and filling that void. They are now messaging uh, the, what the U.S. banks were messaging a number of months ago, and that is it's, it's starting to go away. My guess is by the end of the year, uh, there won't be any capital available. So that, that's kind of issue number one. The issue number two is... Coming out of COVID, a lot of managers decided, because you got to remember there was a mismatch in tenor between the financing lines and the actual assets. And so a lot of managers coming out of COVID thought, well, things are going to get better, so I don't want to uh, refinance my line for four years because it's really expensive, so I'm going to go with one-year financing or two years financing. Well, right now, they're facing a financing wall. So... The impact of all this is, I don't think it's pretty, but it's unchartered, and I can't tell you exactly how it's going to play out. Um, basically, the banks are in the driver's seat. They're going to be determining who they're going to provide capital to and who they aren't. And so I think there's going to be a selective process of selection that's going to occur, and that's going to impact uh, some platforms in a, in a negative way. Um, it will be an opportunity for them also to change terms to maybe turbo some of these lines out. And so it's going to pull cash out of some of these vehicles. I mean, I think everything is kind of up in the air. So I don't have an answer, but I think to get back to, you know, the chocolate bar tasting really good, I think ultimately where we end up because of the platforms themselves that, I mean, look, the, the reality is we've, we've, we should have had some kind of a recession at, you know, earlier. The Fed pushed this thing too far, and we need a reset, and we need, we need to flush out uh, some platforms that shouldn't exist. Um, and I think it's going to be an opportunity. I think there's going to be consolidation. I think it's going to be an opportunity for, you know, platforms that are large, diversified, and, and have a lot of resources. Um, and so it'll be an opportunity to pick up assets. I mean, I picked up uh, uh, assets from lenders uh, at Freeport where they basically pulled lines because there were margin calls and the, and the lender couldn't provide the lender calls. So they just took the whole line away and said, hey, if you can come up with 50 million bucks and plug the gap, we'll provide you long-term financing, work your way out, and all of a sudden it becomes a four or five bagger investment. So I think there's going to be some opportunities like that, but for the larger players that have the capital and, and the uh, liquidity, um, and it'll be an opportunity to uh, poach talent, too, you know, from some platforms. So I'm looking at this, you know, I've, I, I said this in Europe at a conference, and I was told that I was too American because I said, bring on the recession. 
Uh, I did throw out there, I don't want anyone to you know, be hurt or die or anything like that. I don't want a nuclear war, but I want a nice little recession just to reset things. <laughs> and uh, I, think it's, I think it would be a good thing, positive for the, uh, the economy and for our market. Ian, can I give you my business card? You write down the names of all those platforms that have no reason to exist. <laughs> You'll need something bigger than a business card. It's going to come in a book. It's going to come in a book, Jeff. Perfect. <laughs> so, if, if I were if I were to recap, I want to do one question here, and this we're going to go out to the audience, all right? Because after all you've heard and what you know about the public markets, let's just surface this question. So, take a little picture with your QR code, or if you have the ability to vote, if you weren't. Just take a picture there, all right? We'll uh, make sure that we're ready. So do you believe that private credit default and losses, all right, on, on private credit, like will the return, that's essentially code for returns, call it that, will exceed high yield or liquid loan, right, default and losses in the current market cycle? So what we're going to experience today, you know, who's going to do better, right? All right, so the answer is, People in this audience believe that private credit will not, right, exceed high yield defaults and losses. Okay, thank you for that. Now, uh, let's just go on down the line. Dave, how'd you answer that? I would agree with the no. I mean, I think the default rate may be higher just given, you know, smaller companies on average may react to a cycle more than bigger companies. But I think the structural protections really matter and that will lead to a, a you know, a better long term outcome. Which I, you know, to me, as it should, right? You're taking more risk. You're giving up liquidity. You should have a better experience uh, over time. Ian, same, same, Fran, uh, same. I'll say this. Fundamentally, I just don't know how liquid markets can outperform when you've got investment banks, ten of them competing for a deal. They're not going to hold any of the paper. They're going to put the most aggressive terms on it just so that they can sell it to a bunch of CLOs who are going to trade it a week later versus a direct lender who's got to live with that credit. They have to raise their own money and they have to have a track record. Nine times out of 10, that is always going to beat the liquid markets. Jeff? Same. Uh, and I really do want to have that you ask the question about whether you're validating parking. Yeah, okay. You, you were the one that wanted okay. to. Yeah, absolutely not. Right. Uh, what I would uh, what I'd probably venture to say is this. Right. We see the long term trend in private credit, but it essentially is a discussion of moving versus storage. OK, uh, for so long we heard, oh, I love being in the moving business. I love charging that fee and not taking any balance sheet risk. That is what you often heard from banks. Now what's happened is everyone wants to focus in on the storage. The difference, though, is with the storage business, as long as you're charging a fee on that capital, right, that stores it, you end up creating an immense amount of value because there's no middleman, right? And so over time, do I believe that we're going to see much more opportunity out of the storage business? Absolutely. And so that creates a significant industry and significant growth opportunity. Give the panelists a hand, please. So thank you so much. Thanks for listening to episode number four of season seven of Streaming Income. If you'd like to stay up to date on our latest thoughts on asset classes ranging from high yield and private credit to real estate and emerging markets, make sure to follow us and leave a review on your favorite podcast platform. We're on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and more. We publish a new episode every other week. And if you have specific feedback, you can email us at podcast at bearings.com. That's podcast at B-A-R-I-N-G-S dot com. Thanks again for listening and see you next time.